Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm Jared Brummett, audio engineer and editor, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. In this episode, we're diving into the next installment of our study in Philippians. Rob delivered this message at World Outreach Church in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. As always, we'd like to invite you to visit robertjmorgan.com, where you'll find Rob's blog post, podcast feed, bookstore, free resources, and more. If you've not already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Now, here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. I appreciate that man very much. I love him. I love you. I'm very happy to be here. They say that speakers should never begin with an apology, but I want to apologize in advance because the last three weeks I've had an upper and lower respiratory problem, and it's affected my voice a little. So I'm going to, you may not notice it, but I already am. So I'm going to do the best I can to press through, and if uh, you can't hear something quite clearly enough, if you'll lift your hand, I will repeat it, and we'll make sure that all of the truth gets out. My voice is not the only thing that isn't working well in these days. It seems like nothing is working very well in our world. And we look around and we say, who can we follow that will lead us accurately and correctly. There were some people the other day, a few months ago really, that wanted to explore the Buffalo National River, which is in Arkansas. I've never been there, but I've seen pictures of it, and it's very beautiful. This Buffalo, it's the first national river that is to come under the um, authority of the National Park Service. So it's like a national park. And it doesn't have any, it's never been dammed. And so it's just a wild, raw river that sometimes can be very treacherous. Goes for many, many miles. Some of you have been there, and some of it has very high bluffs there in the middle of the Ozarks. Well, this group hired a guide to take them into some of the unexplored parts of that park. And unfortunately, they hired a guide who was not trained, who was not licensed, who was not experienced, just a guy out wanting to make some money. He led them into a part of this Buffalo National River that was beyond their ability to manage it. One person slipped to their death, and the tragedy that ensued was because they had followed the wrong guide. Well, there's a lesson in that for us, because we look around today and we have political leaders, we have religious leaders, we have moral leaders, we have educational leaders, we have media people telling us what to believe, and how do we know how to follow the right guide? Well, there's a passage that deals with this that I want to show you. It's in the book of Philippians chapter 3. Now, the last two or three times I've been here, I've been going through Philippians, and the reason is because... I've been preaching every week or teaching every week on my podcast, the Robert J. Morgan podcast, and I've been going through Philippians. And so when I have the opportunity of speaking somewhere else, I just take the next message and deliver it there and instead of in the studio. Um, it's always better to speak to a live audience than a dead one, which is 
what a microphone is when you're sitting there in the middle of that studio. So I've just been working my way through Philippians, and I'm coming to this passage, chapter 3, beginning with verse 17. So let me read it here for you. Philippians 3, 17. Join together and following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I've often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way. Now, it's my belief that this brings to a conclusion the contents of the body of the book of uh, Philippians. From this point on, Paul is going to have an extended conclusion. But this is the body of the letter. I think if you want to look with me at Philippians chapter 1, that the first 26 verses are an extended introduction. And then he begins the body of the book. Look at this in chapter 1, verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come to see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm. So he says in the earlier part of the book, in the introduction, I don't know what's going to happen to me. This might happen, this might happen. I may live, I may die. But now he's beginning the book when he says, whatever happens, here is the way I want you to live. Here is the way that I want you to stand firm. And then he goes through chapters 2 and 3, and he comes to chapter 4, and he says, therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way. So you see, when he says stand firm here, he says it in chapter 1, verse 27. He says it in chapter 4, verse 1. And the content, the body, the main portion of Philippians is between those two verses, telling us how to stand firm. In other words, the picture we should have of ourselves is of a massive tree, well-rooted and grounded in Christ by the waterside, and if the winds of opposition blow, we will stand firm. If the winds of temptations hit us, we will stand firm. If the tornado or the hurricanes of societal change comes roaring through us and over us and among our limbs, we will stand firm. This is the way that we are to stand firm in Christ, he says. And in chapter 2, he gives us the example of Jesus himself, who though he was God, did not cling to the prerogatives of his divinity, 
but made himself as nothing and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of humanity. And he tells us about Timothy and he tells us about Epaphroditus. And in chapter three, he tells us about himself. He said, if anybody had a reason to be proud of their, of their heritage, it's me. But whatever was gained for me, I consider it garbage now for the sake of Christ. So now he is going to wrap it all up and he says in verse 17 of this third chapter, join together in following my examples, my brothers and sisters, just as you have seen and have us as a model. So keep your eye on those of us who live as we do. In other words, he is saying, there are only a few people in this world who will really provide you with a great model for living. Only a few people in this world will provide you with a great model for living. I know some of those people in my life. I had great parents that loved the Lord, and I'm grateful for that. I had a wonderful pastor growing up who was a model, an example for me. In college, I had some tremendous professors, mentors, upperclassmen. My dear wife, Katrina, was a model like that until she went to heaven. I can tell you all through the life, some of the people that have led me in the correct way, and their example was worth emulating, and they encouraged me, and I'm stronger today because of them. And we all need people like that in our lives. Do you have some people like that in your life? You look back and you say, I can stand firm today because these people gave me the input that I needed at a critical time. And we need to be people like that. I mean, that's exactly who the Lord wants us to be. We need to be able to pray, Lord, may my life be so exemplary before you that other people watching me or those to whom I minister or those that I work with or my children or grandchildren might become rooted and grounded in Christ because of the input that I can give them by the grace of God. So there are a few people in our lives that we should follow. The second thing though in this passage is there are many people in our lives who will mess us up if we let them. There are far more people who will mess us up than they are who will give us a good model and give us guidance in life. So look at verse number 18. For as, as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. They're not Christ followers. The message of the cross is something that they don't understand. They don't embrace, they don't accept. It seems like a foolish thing to them to follow the Christ of the cross. For those of us who believe the cross is powerful, we say with the Apostle Paul, may I never boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and me to the world. But these people, we have people today in the United States, and in Nashville and in Murfreesboro and maybe in your family and everywhere who are enemies of the cross. Well, don't follow them. This is what Paul is saying. And he says a second thing about them. He says their destiny is destruction. In other words, they're going to hell. 
And thirdly, he says, their God is their stomach. They live by their appetites, by their materialism, by their desire and craving for things. And so their whole life is being driven by the pursuit of things that will satisfy the appetites that they have. And their glory is in their shame. The things that they ought to be ashamed of is what they're proud of. The things that they ought to be ashamed of is what they are proud of. The word pride today is used very frequently to describe activities that people ought to be ashamed of, but they are proud of the things that they should um, uh, be embarrassed about, and their mind is set on earthly things. They don't consider the perspective of God or the wisdom of the Bible. This is a description, five different characteristics of all of the people around us now who can mess up our lives if we let them. That's why many of you have children here tonight in the youth programs. You want them to have good models, good input, good teaching, because you know what's out there in the society facing them every single day. So here Paul is saying there are a few people who can be good models for you. There are many people who can mess up your lives. But then he goes on in the next verse to say there is only one person who will transform you eternally. Look at verse number 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they may be like his glorious body. This is one of the most specific and significant eschatological verses in the Bible. Eschatological is a word that comes from the Greek word eschatos, meaning having to do with the last days or with the coming of Christ. And I want to look at this. These two verses are so wonderful. If, if you can get a hold of them, then they're going to get a hold of you. He begins by saying, our citizenship is in heaven. Now, Philippi was a citizenship city in the Roman Empire. Not everybody was privileged to be a citizen. There were only a few citizens. Paul was a citizen because his parents had been granted citizenship and he was born a citizen of Rome. But many people were not. But in Philippi, because of a war that had been fought there some years before the emperor, in appreciation, had named everybody in Philippi as a citizen. And the city was very proud of that, that they were citizens of Rome. And the emperor in that city and in those areas was called Kurios and Soter, which in the Greek is Lord and Savior. And many times when you went to the athletic events or civic events or any kind of public greeting or meeting, you would be expected to pay homage to the Lord and Savior who was at this time Nero. The Christians wouldn't do that, and that's one of the reasons why they were being pressured when Paul wrote the book of Philippians to them. 
It is very hard not to bow down to the pressures of our culture. And it's very important to know when we must stand firm on certain issues in order to maintain our allegiance to Christ and a biblical worldview. But Paul said here, you are citizens of heaven. God has planted a heavenly colony of heavenly citizens in northern Greece and it is the church at Philippi. And God has planted a colony of heavenly citizens in this city. And it is you and me and us. And we are citizens of heaven. Now that means that we shouldn't feel perfectly at home in this world, right? I enjoy traveling overseas. But I've been in some situations where I didn't feel very comfortable. And it doesn't matter where I am. I enjoy, you know, being in Europe or Asia or Africa, wherever it is, because it's a different, it, it's fun. I'm a traveler. I can see things that I've never seen before, but I'm eager to get back home. I have an American passport. This is my home. I'm a citizen of the United States. So I don't want to be an expatriate somewhere else. I want to just settle down and be at home here. We are citizens of heaven, and this world is not our home. We are not citizens of the earth going to heaven. We are citizens of heaven traveling through the earth. And Peter said that we are foreigners and strangers on this planet. So if you don't feel perfectly at home here, that's because you're a citizen of heaven. If you ask, prove that you're a citizen of the United States, I'll go get my passport for you. If you say, prove that you're a citizen of heaven, I've got the passport right here. And we are citizens of heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there. Now, this phrase, eagerly await, is the biblical definition for hope. H-O-P-E. The word hope, both in the Greek and in the English, is used in two different ways. It can mean an aspiration or a desire you have which may or may not come true. Like, I hope that it's going to be beautiful weather in April to celebrate this particular event. But you don't know if it will be or not. You simply have an, a, a desire for that. But the, the biblical, the, the way that the writers of the Bible also use that word, hope, and the theological weight of this word indicates something that we are eagerly awaiting, which is certain to happen. It describes our anticipation, our excitement. And Paul said, I am eagerly awaiting for the Savior to come back. Now, this is a mindset that many of us have lost. Paul said, when I look up in the sky and I see the sun, I look at the sunrise, it reminds me of Jesus coming back. And when I go to bed at night, I think another day is over. I'm closer to the coming of Christ. And when I look up at the sky and I see the clouds, I know beyond there is the land to which I'm a citizen and I'm eager to go there. And when I look down and I see the ground, I'm reminded that there's a place I'm not going to be very long. 
And when I have burdens, I think they'll soon be over. When I have joys, I think there'll be nothing compared to the joys of heaven. For to me, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord and to live as Christ and to die as gain. He had this anticipation for it. He was eagerly awaiting. And after all, (coughs) excuse me, after all, he had been caught up to the third heaven. He says in 2 Corinthians 12 that on one occasion he was caught up and he saw it. He couldn't tell people what he saw, but it was spectacular. And if we could be caught up for five minutes to the third heaven, we wouldn't want to stay very much longer on this world. We would say, I'm eager to get there. So our citizenship is in heaven from which we await a savior who by the power, now notice this in the middle of verse 21, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control. The Lord right now is in the process of bringing everything under his control. It's happening gradually. It's happening providentially. It will be completed when he comes again. And earlier in chapter 2, Paul had talked about this. He said, there is coming a day when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And in the book of Hebrews, it says, we do not yet see everything under his control, but we see him who is bringing everything under his control. So we look at the world right now and we say, this is out of control. Well, it appears to us to be out of control, but in the providence of God, in the unfolding of his story, and the sovereignty of his power, he is bringing things towards a consummation when everything will be under his control. That's why we want to be under his control right now. So we eagerly await a Savior from heaven who will bring everything under his control and will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. This is a very significant statement. It tells us a great deal about what we're going to be like when Jesus comes again. Well, thanks for digging into the riches of the Bible with us. This episode was produced by Joshua Rowe and the marketing company Clearly Media. Audio editing is by Jared Brummer. Editorial supervision is by Sherry Anderson. And Luke Tyler condenses and posts each of these episodes as blogs on my website at robertjmorgan.com where you can find many other resources. Music is by Jordan Davis and Elijah Rowe. Please share this podcast with somebody else. Thanks for tuning in, and may God be with you until we meet again.